0: it's tuesday december 13th 2022 from peachfish productions it's the gist i'm mike pesca To some, COVID deaths are down by 80% within the year, though some would be anyone who looks at statistics. January of 2022, we're hitting around 2,500 COVID deaths a day. Now we're averaging less than 500, almost all of them unvaccinated. Anyone taking solace in that does not understand the point of things. The point is that solace is for suckers and catastrophe is cool. The continuous growing threat of this quote unquote triple demic with COVID, the flu and RSV all at once. The triple demic is the murder hornet of bomb cyclones. It's going around now a branded exercise in Armageddon. See, COVID is deadly. It's unprecedented. It was a decimator of society. But we can't just say, oh, COVID's abating. That's a good thing. In its place, we shove the flu. The flu was once the control group, as in COVID. Is it really that much worse than the flu? And yes, it was that much worse. But now we simply count the flu along with the third ill that makes up the triple-demic respiratory syncytial virus, In this new concoction, this triple-demic, it sounds three times as bad as COVID. COVID is just a part of it. But in fact, COVID is much worse than the other two. So it's a little like if a town jailed the town murderer, but the town card cheat and the town drunk were still on the loose. And then it started nailing up all these wanted posters. Wanted, drunken cheating murder ring besetting our town. RSV has been around for years. In fact, decades, centuries. It can cause mortality, to babies in low-income countries. A very disturbing report out of Zambia shows that more infants than were previously thought died of RSV, about 50 babies a year, most of whom didn't get treatment and were younger than three months old in Zambia. So you still might get a nasty cough, you still might get a very bad cold, as we have since people gathered in civilizations. We're taking that old COVID is going to kill you message, which was a necessary message at the time, and simply filling two-thirds of it with some flu and a little more RSV. Nasty stuff. Stuff I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, if my worst enemy had arranged a play date with my kid. But other than that, we could cool it on all the demics. Epidemics mean something. Pandemics are widespread versions of that. Triple demics? Unless it's espresso with a shot of triple sec and tonic, please rein it in, folks. Between the exaggeration, inaccuracy, attention-seeking, and dread, it's a veritable quadastrophe of fear. On the show today, I shall spiel about the one glowing bright spot in the otherwise moribund economy. But first... Nina Totenberg is not only a 40-year-plus veteran of covering the Supreme Court, but she's also a person whose life has intersected with the court in ways beyond simply the professional. Her new memoir is Dinners with Ruth, a memoir of friendship. In it, she writes about her decades-long bond with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The first half of my conversation with NPR's Nina Totenberg up next. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block, and indeed there is. And me and Jay, the neighbor, and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say... I don't want to make this too tawdry, but we lust, or perhaps we gvel. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures the Defender family... Features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com Defender. On the front page of her new book memoir, Dinners with Ruth, a memoir on the power of friendships, Nina Totenberg is identified as NPR legal affairs correspondent. I would say it's maybe more accurate to say NPR is, oh, you know, that place that employs Nina Totenberg. When I worked there for (laughs) over a decade, colleagues like Nina were exactly the kind of people who made me extremely proud. And I have to say, rediscovering some of the stories of Nina's uh, time and friendship with Linda Wertheimer, Cokie Roberts, many of the other NPR employees gave me a shiver of excitement and then reading about her friendship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg gave me, I guess, a little bit of pride, what the Jews might call knockus. Nina, <laughs> welcome. Welcome to the gist.
1: Pesca, How do you know that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> my mom's my mom's a cat, sir. That's why. Oh. <laughs> See, I code shift as uh, the name of the mm-hmm. NPR podcast would have
1: it. <laughs> So,
0: I and you have said, and you've documented this in the book, in many interviews, the first time you met uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was over the phone when she was a a professor at Rutgers, an hour-long conversation. She educated you. I actually want to jump ahead to, when was the first time that you were aware that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was not just a friendly acquaintance, a valuable source, or someone for whom you maybe shared a mutual fondness, but a friend, a real friend?
1: I think it was when her husband... Marty, asked me to write a letter um, that he was going to put in a book, which was letters from her friends for her 50th birthday. So that would have been, um, let's see, she would be, I guess, 89 now, and um, 89 or 90 now, so that would right. have been 40 years ago.
0: Yeah, around 1983 or so. hmm Yeah. Yeah, and at that up to that point, did you was there something about your professional association that she wasn't yet on the Supreme Court that stopped you from saying from embracing the title or the status of friend, real friend, boon companion?
1: Probably that she was such an amazingly smart person. <laughs> I mean, and she was you know she was eleven years older than 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 me, and. She was very different from me in a lot of ways, and she was probably the, in terms of intellect, whether you agreed with her or not, in terms of intellect, I think she was probably the smartest person I knew at that point in my life. Mm -hmm. I mean, she never forgot anything. I don't think she had um, a photographic memory, but she never seemed to forget anything, and that was true Really, almost in the last days of her life, her body was failing her, but her mind was not. Right. There's uh, many anecdotes like this, but one was the name Martin Sheen comes
0: up. She liked him (laughs) on the West Wing. And she says, oh, I think I saw him in his Broadway debut. And you said, what was that? And she remembered exactly what it was. Exactly. Yeah. It must have been roses. Friends all give us something we need. Sometimes we don't even know what it is that we need. What do you think that Ruth gave you?
1: It's a very good question, Mike. I think she gave me, first of all, she was a wonderful translator of law when she was a lawyer, and I used to call her, and she would explain things to me. And that went on for some time before she became a judge. But she was also a person who, even with her attainments then, was, like me, very much an outsider, with her nose pressed up against the glass wall. And what we were saying to the people we worked with uh, was, um, hey, guys, let us in. You know, women can do these jobs, and we can do them as well or better than you can. And to have somebody of her quality and significantly older than me, having those same experiences was really important. Mm. What do you think you gave her? Friendship. You know, and I think over time she understood that I, when she went became a justice, there was no way I could discuss her work with her. That was off bounds. And that was something that would have been true with any justice. And um, if you want to be friends with a justice and understand them more and enjoy their company, you understand you don't ask them about their current work. And what I think became clear to her was that I didn't want anything out of her. I didn't need her to preside at an event. I didn't need her. I just enjoyed her company. And over time, we became very warm friends. Now, she had a ton of warm friends, I have to say. Um, But she made Each of us, I think, feel special. And in that last year of her life, we were special because she came to dinner at our house every Saturday for uh, something, I think, 23 or 24 consecutive Saturdays um, before she died.
0: Mm. Your husband was, well, how would you describe it,
1: part of her medical team, his doctor? Not Not her official medical team. He was her unofficial confidant. And then... He, She would, as she got sick in those last couple of years of her, in her, of her life, she relied on him to be her, I guess I wouldn't say translator, as a, somebody she wanted there at important moments. So when she went to Sloan Kettering to discuss her, her surgery for lung cancer, she asked him to be with her and only her children and david and interestingly she asked her the her, her marshal george smith in new york who had accompanied her zillions of times over the years in new york and occasionally in washington she asked him to come into the room and hear the discussion and david participated in the discussion because she really trusted his medical judgment and thereafter he and her internist talked often about ways they could make her life better, um, make her be perhaps a bit more pain-free and that kind of thing.
0: So just as she was a very useful uh, explicator of legal arcana to you, your husband served a similar
1: role when it came to medical information for her. He did. And, um, And they never included me in that, which was just as it should have been because... As she put it to me, um, after that lung cancer surgery, she called me. um, I was waiting to do a TV hit, and we were having a quick dinner that night. And she called me from the ICU with a chest tube in her. And she sat there, and she said, and I answered the phone in, in the restaurant. And she said, Nina, I'm calling you because I wanted you to know that I didn't let David tell you anything because I didn't want you to be trapped between your friendship for me and your obligations as a reporter.
0: Right, right.
1: Because perhaps uniquely
0: among uh, citizens of the world. The health of this person isn't just the health of a human or a health of a friend. It has enormous policy implications, and you really would have been trapped, which gets me to a question about navigating the relationships, maintaining the warm relationship, but still navigating the professional aspects of it. Were there, Did you just figure it out as it go, went along, or were there actual discussions of this is inbounds, this is out of
1: bounds, this is how I'm going to do it? You know, they're really, for the most part, with one exception, were not discussions. Because the lines were pretty clear. It's not like covering Congress. Covering the court is like covering the Kremlin to some extent. What they do behind closed doors stays behind closed doors, with the very famous exception in big time, biggest time, of the abortion opinion um, last term, the Dobbs Dobbs. decision. Um, But. Part of the reason it was such a sensation as a story is that it broke all the rules, every one of them, and um, so we really didn't discuss it. And uh, but I understood that, you know, if I knew medical stuff about her, I would feel very conflicted. So I didn't know medical stuff about her. I let. David do his job with her and have his separate friendship with her about those things. And I kept the line. And she only once asked me not to ask her something. And I just said to her, Ruth, I can't do that. That's my job.
0: And that was about her comments about uh, the danger of how upset she was about what Donald Trump was doing, which she she admitted she went, uh, beyond the line lines that she knew existed. Yeah, she walked
1: it back she walked yeah, it yeah. back she she had given several interviews it seriatim um, in which she had said very critical things about uh, Trump when he was a candidate for president and um, it within days she realized she shouldn't have done that which I, I really never have understood why she didn't understand at the time Uh, why she did say those things, but I had a long-scheduled interview with her that very week. And so I said to her, I'm going to be asking you about this, which was fairly frequent. I said that to her when I was going to interview her, whether it was in public or in private. And she said to me, oh, oh, please don't, please don't do that. And I said, I can't do that, Ruth. That's my job. And Mm. she didn't argue with me.
0: Maybe it was. I don't know. I'll just offer this opinion. In all your interactions, how many times did she ever really do something that she knew was wrong? Like not just an opinion that might be overturned or take a stand she later reconsidered. She'd have to admit that this was wrong. And I don't know if how how often that happened.
1: Well, this is an odd thing, but she was fairly transparent for a Supreme Court justice, not only about her health when she she was would you know, release information about her health whenever something did go wrong, much more so than other members of the court did. They often didn't let the public know anything at all. Um, And she did occasionally make, you know, some minor mistake in a legal document, you know, an opinion, a concurrence or something. And there were a couple of times I can remember where she actually changed the copy in an opinion because she said, and she would announce that she'd done that because Mm -hmm. some detail had been wrong. In this case, I think she my, my armchair psychology is that she was very conflicted, that she was really horrified by Trump as a candidate and thought subconsciously that she should let people know that. And then once she did that, she realized she had really screwed up. Yeah. Well, you,
0: in the business you're in, at least uh, according to the strictures of the business as it was defined during your era and mine, similar a similar dynamic exists that you're supposed to divorce whatever your opinion is of even a threat to the republic, let's say, in your reporting. So maybe you could identify with that a little bit.
1: Yes and no. I mean, you're right. Our, there's a lot more opinion journalism today, and there are so many times that there are supposedly two versions of the facts. But I still think facts are facts, and that people listen to me and read my copy in in the digital versions of what I do, not because they actually want to hear my opinions. They really do want to know what happened, what the facts are of a case, what the court said, what the disagreement is. And the same thing if you're covering a trial or something like that. Maybe someday, years later, you might say what I just said to you about Ruth, about my armchair psychology of that particular stupid thing that she said. <laughs> I and mean, it's probably the only stupid thing I've ever known her to do. Huh. Um, but I would never do that contemporaneously. That just would not, that I. Years later, it's one thing, but right at the moment, people really want to know what happened at yesterday's Supreme Court argument. What did it look like to you? Um, Where are the votes or not the votes? And that kind of thing. Yeah. So. During your friendship with her, towards the end, she became,
0: she transcended this extremely important position of Supreme Court justice. She became this cultural icon. I heard an interview you did uh, for the Clinton Foundation or for Clinton in, in a hockey arena with her, and every one of her and your pronouncements was greeted with just these whoops Thank of glee. Thank you for
1: coming. I think Justice Ginsburg and I have never, ever appeared before an audience this large before. <laughs>
0: you write about it in the book about navigating becoming the kind of celebrity who has to look straight ahead in an airport or else they'll never be able to get to their gate. But my question about this is, would a Ruth Bader Ginsburg superfan, can such a person be said to really understand the essence of Ruth Bader Ginsburg if that same person loathes, let's say, Antonin Scalia or just bemoans court rulings that go against their preference?
1: Well, they should be able to actually like Antonin Scalia if they ever had the chance to spend any time with him, which I luckily did. And I was, I I really, as a human being, I loved him. I just was crazy about him. He was a wonderful friend, and I miss him very much. Not as much as I miss Ruth, because I was, you know, she was my friend for yet longer, but he was my friend for a long time. And I often didn't agree with him, and that was sort of, Irrelevant to me and to him, thank God. (laughs) So to channel a person who might
0: say loathe Antonin Scalia, which I didn't, by the way. My family uh, holds in high regard brilliant Italian-Americans for some reason. That's just one thing we do. Um, (laughs) Oh, he was a brilliant Italian-American. It was both of those things very much. But I guess the uh, thinking goes, you know, when the stakes are this high, when something like the Republic is at stake, then it doesn't matter the personality of an individual. And there are different ways to argue against that sentiment. But one of them is, I don't know, maybe you don't think the stakes are that high, or maybe you think this is just part and parcel of what the Supreme Court does. And, and any time that you look at their rulings, you could argue yourself into thinking that it's all on the line. There's no time for niceties. How do you intellectually navigate or did you confront? your friendship with him, your friendship with Richard Pearl, who, by the way, is a person that I've met and
1: admire as well. So I did not become a reporter to put my views first and foremost. I became a reporter, to put this perhaps too grandly, to be a witness to history and to tell the public what I thought through my eyes what what is going on. And I think that the most difficult challenge to that is not somebody like Scalia, uh, but somebody m- like Donald Trump, who does make it a practice of not even shaving the truth, but telling lies, and telling different lies that contradict each other sometimes, um, amazingly. Most politicians are afraid to do that, and he got away with it and that is the hardest challenge, I think. I fortunately never covered the White House.
0: If you weren't a reporter or a journalist, what do you think you would do? If I weren't? Yeah, if you had a, chose a different path.
1: Oh, what, what do I think I would do? I think if I hadn't, if I'd really liked school I, and if I'd thought it was open to me, well, the first thing I would have been was a, was a cop. I really I I mean that's really what I wanted to be when I was younger and I realized that you couldn't I couldn't be Nancy Drew and I couldn't couldn't be a a sleuth because there weren't any women detectives Um, so that wasn't possible but the other thing I might have been would have been a trial lawyer because I like fencing around over what the outcome of something is going to be and righting a wrong or protecting somebody who isn't able to protect themselves so I'm you know, that might have interested me. But the first thing probably would have been a detective.
0: And tomorrow on the show, I will bring you part two of my interview with Nina Totenberg when we discuss reenacting Supreme Court arguments, getting mocked by SNL. And then Nina asks, can you shit a two way? And we'll try to figure out why she said that. The answer is not at all meretricious. That's tomorrow on The Gist. And now the spiel. In business news, things seem gloomy. I think inflation is lower than before, but it's higher than is comfortable. In the Bank of America's ongoing survey of business leaders, 69% predict a weaker economy next year, but that is down from 73%. The outlook for earnings, not great. 91% expecting profit growth to deteriorate. But parse that, still profit growth. So bad, but not so bad. Oh yeah, then there's tech. Many sectors are continuing to add jobs,
1: but that is not true in the tech sector, where a number of companies have announced layoffs. Meta, the parent company of Facebook, is laying off 11,000 employees. This is about 13% of its workforce, and these layoffs are the first the company has made since it was founded 18 years ago.
0: It's a shakeout, not unlike what we saw when the dot-com bubble bust in the year 2000. Uh, so a lot of companies probably will disappear, but we should not think. So that's not good news. And this next report is not just less good news. It's news about there being less news. We've seen me- many media companies from Netflix to CNN lay off employees. A reported 3,000 media jobs have been cut, with more than one-third coming from from news media. I find a lot of financial information that says things are bad. I can, if I look really hard, find other information saying things are less bad than like totally really bad. Not good per se, but you know, this could be 2021 or we could be the UK, that sort of good. There is but one indicator in the economy that is unambiguously good. One is economic powerhouse that shows no sign of abating that it was a record-breaking weekend for the box office of black panther wakanda forever it surpassed all expectations wakanda forever has been topping the box office well forever five weeks the film is apparently going to save the u.s economy it's a money-making juggernaut it will not stop but for one interloper another has a claim to the throne In three days, we will be visited by the cinematic event of all time, Avatar, The Way of Water. The garbillion-dollar sequel to the flabillion-dollar-making 2009 film, Avatar. The most successful movie ever made, one that no one ever watched a second time. The most successful film, placing it, in the most prestigious and important medium of this, the media age, which everyone saw and everyone had the same reaction to, that was cool, what's for dinner? Avatar: Way of Water combines all the elements that the world doesn't object to. Blue people, flying fake bird things, and of course, as its central star, Sam Worthington. This movie is expected to break every box office estimate. How could it not? It stars Sam Worthington, a man whose middle name, or at least the middle of his last name, is Worthy. Avatar, a piece of intellectual property no one values, except it's the most valuable thing ever. An iconography no one cherishes. A part of our childhoods that no one cares about. A movie that was precisely better for more people on the planet than was not going to the movies. It holds that distinction. It is the chicken and broccoli of movies, the 74 degree day of cinema. Think of all the Avatar tattoos, the Avatar fan art, the airbrushed denim jackets, the iPhone cases with Avatar imagery. You can't, there are none, because Avatar is a film everyone saw and just about no one hated, or if they did, they weren't that loud about it. A film that you gotta hand it to visually, an experience we all shared as an above-average time spent indoors a movie that notably took place during a lull in the NBA season and when the series Treme was the hottest thing on HBO. Maybe Boardwalk Empire actually accurately holds that title. That was supposed to be the premium cable thing that got us all excited. This was a year before some dragon show would wrest that title away. So Wakanda Forever, a movie with actual enormous buy-in and interest, opened at $181 million. Avatar is predicted to go beyond that. And why not? The first one did great, and people are not totally incurious about the new one. So strap on your Navi glasses and collect your unobtainium. And to quote that memorable bit of dialogue from the first Avatar movie nothing. No one remembers any of it. No one cares. It meant nothing to us. We all saw it. We're going to do it again. Here comes the sequel. It's going to rock our worlds, leaving us to only wonder, do I have a half a burrito in the fridge? Should I pick up some cheesy bread on the way home? Oh yeah, good movie. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by the triple team, triple wonder force of Corey Wara, assistant producer, Joel Patterson, senior producer, and Michelle Pesca, COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperujiperu and thanks for listening. You cannot talk one more word and I will feed you to my children.
1: I'm kidding, we are vegetarians.